I think I want her to be an American, but to be critical and thoughtful and like a little bit hopeful also, you know, for her to see the good pieces. That said, like, I don't know. I really don't know if even if we could live in the U.S., like whether we would. I will never forget the moment Pascal asked me, what are you looking for? This was 10 years before we became parents. We were driving down I-80 on a long stretch of highway that lapped like a tongue through the fields. Corn rising high to one side, soy shimmering like velvet on the other. Our longest road trip to date had just recently happened. It was my first experience of the Deep South where he was born. We had passed through Arkansas, Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana. This day's trip was far less ambitious, but I felt a certain giddiness being back on the open road. We had been speeding down the highway, the crops undulating all around us. Suddenly, the car shook with a loud bang. I held tight to the steering wheel as the entire vehicle rattled, feeling to me like the entire undercarriage was crumbling beneath us. My hands were shaking as I yanked us to the right, desperate to somehow get us away from ourselves. Calmly, Pascal directed me to a stop where we discovered that a rear tread had dislodged itself from its tire, snapping into an errant sail. A service station was in sight, so we slowly limped the car off the highway. Safe, on unmoving solid ground, we fumbled for the wrench, the jack, and the spare. At the station's edge, I could feel my pale skin already beginning to redden under a blaring sun. There were fellow travelers everywhere, pumping gas, squeegeeing windshields, sucking fountain sodas, scratching lottery tickets, watching kids spin around and around to release their pent-up car seat energy. This was Iowa, so everyone in sight, besides Pascal, was white. I watched them all with an expectant stance that Pascal noticed before I did. What are you looking for? Welcome to Pan Parenting. I am your host, Liz Waz, a white American mother raising two biracial children in Rome, Italy. Ever since becoming a mother, I have been more and more aware of the influence of fear on my choices and thoughts, on the emotional ecosystem encircling my family's life. Pan Parenting is a year-long project to seek out, confront, dispel, and destroy the fears that threaten to damage our well-being. In a year of conversations with parents from across the globe, parents of all nations, I will find a better, more courageous, and fulfilling way to live as a woman, a partner, an artist, a mother, abroad and at home, wherever the latter shall be. What are you looking for? Um, I stuttered. It's just, what, why isn't anyone asking if we need help? He stared at me a moment, standing to his full height of six foot three inches, the wrench hanging from his dark hand, and he began to laugh. I had finished my undergraduate degree. I had finished my graduate degree. I had spent countless hours intellectually grappling with the fact 
of racism in the world. But I realized in that moment that I had not yet grappled with the feeling of racism in my life. When I remember that day now, I remember it from above. In my mind's eye, I do not see what I saw, my view of all those people, the strangers whom I had expected to offer their aid, their concern. I see instead myself. I look down at her as if I were perched atop the closest gas pump. For more than ten years, until I left America for Italy, I kept that rubber flap that was once my tire in the car's trunk. Pascal and I carried it with us, under our luggage, when we moved west. I didn't ever want to forget what it feels like to be surrounded by people who do not care if I need help. I don't know. I really don't know if, even if we could live in the U.S., like whether we would. In the years before I met Pascal, I had been an ambitious solo traveler. With nothing more than I could carry on my back, I had traveled alone through parts of Asia, the American West, Europe, often with no itinerary, frequently arriving on a new island or in a new town or a wholly new country, with no lodgings even. I was, perhaps understandably, proud of my ability to navigate the world alone. Alone, I had watched the sun rise and set on an island fewer than four square miles in size, an island too small for boats to dock, and so to mount it, I had to jump into the water yards from shore, wading up the sandy slope my luggage balanced on a dark-skinned porter's head. Alone, I had made eye contact with wild bison. Alone, I had pressed my fingers through the wire fencing to touch what was left of the Berlin Wall, whose near-complete destruction I had once watched, live, on TV. At least that's what I had thought. It wasn't until my tire lost its tread that I realized... I had actually never traveled anywhere alone. Everywhere I had gone, everywhere in the world, strangers had practically lined up to help me. I never had to ask. People would see me approach, introduce themselves, and offer aid. Everywhere I went, naively, I had taken this as evidence of humanity's generosity, while it was actually evidence of the shocking scope of my privilege. I kept that strip of rubber in my car so I never forget that the help so forthcoming is nothing I've earned. In early June, as I watched through my computer screen as revolution spread in my homeland, my thoughts turned away from the quarantine restrictions rapidly easing in Italy, landing back upon a perennial worry about the uncertain relationship my children would someday form with their ancestral land. Contemplating my own mild estrangement from the country of my birth, I decided to call Leah James, another white American mother abroad, but one who, unlike me, did not come upon her estrangement entirely voluntarily. Instead, legally barred from entering with her family her husband's home country or her own. How did you and your partner meet? Uh, so we met in Lebanon. I was there for a research project four years ago now. And um, actually, the very first day I was in the country, the first thing you do when you get into a new city is look for um, a place to buy a SIM card. And so 
I went yes. into like the shop, <laughs> the shop near the Airbnb that I had to buy a SIM card and he repairs like phones and laptops and things like that. So he happened to be in the shop on this day and he sold me the SIM card. And as is typical in Beirut, internet connection is terrible. And you, he had to like register me for the SIM card and it took forever. And so we ended up having a long conversation and then, you know, he was just in the neighborhood. And so we, we saw each other a bunch and just ended up spending a lot of time together. And I ended up staying in Beirut like a year and a half longer than I'd planned. And so that's how it happened. And then how did you end up in Italy? Yes. Um, so we were in Beirut. We, we got married in Cyprus, actually. And then we applied for uh, to immigrate to the U.S. Not necessarily because we were itching to live in the U.S., to be honest, but because the Syrian passport is so awful that we just weren't really have much flexibility in terms of where we could travel to or live. And so it seemed like a good idea to try to get Ali's the U.S. passport for that reason. And right when we applied, or I guess it was it was after several months after the um, Muslim ban, uh, travel ban came down in the US. And so although we went through sort of the whole process, in the end, his visa application was denied under the travel ban. So during this time, we were getting sick of Beirut for various reasons. One being that it's there's a lot of discrimination against Syrians. It's really hard to work there. And so we decided I I took a job at some point after this research project ended in Iraq, in Erbil with a small NGO there. And we moved together. And, and part of my contract was that they would arrange for a visa for him. And so that's another reason why we took that job, because it's it's sort of hard to make sure that that's the case. We'd been trying for a while, but I got pregnant. I had also just started at the job that I'm at currently. And part of their security protocol was that we could not stay in Iraq to have the baby. Although it's very stable there in Erbil, I think they still had concerns about you know taking responsibility for a baby. Basically, we were then in this situation where... We had to go somewhere and it was not clear where we could go because we couldn't go to the U.S. for the reasons that I shared. And then we can't go to Syria either. Not that that would necessarily have been a great idea, but even if we wanted to, um, I can't get into Syria because it's very hard for American to get a visa and our marriage isn't recognized because we had a civil marriage. So basically, we were just sort of considering random countries. And at some point, we discovered there's a special visa in Italy for pregnancy and birth. And so he was able to get a Schengen visa and we got into the country and applied, eventually got it. And so that's where we had our daughter. My employer ended up moving us to Colombia and it took a while to get that visa managed for the whole family. So we spent like six months all together mm. in Rome and it was a good, it was a really good experience. We feel like really lucky, honestly, that it worked out as it did. It was sort of a yeah. small miracle. You know, like I was in bakeries, very pregnant 
there would be Nona who would come and like kiss my belly. It happened a yes. couple of times. And I was like, this is such a cliche. Is this really happening? But it really happened. Yeah. It really, <laughs> and then there'd be really some did. like embarrassed, like teenage grandchild would be like, what? <laughs> why? <laughs> Don't do that. That's weird. And then Nona would just be giddy. And mm. yeah, it was really sweet. I was wondering if you tell me a little bit about your work, which I know has taken you around the world quite a bit. Sure. I am a psychologist and a social worker, and I work in the humanitarian sector. So at the moment, I'm a mental health and psychosocial support technical advisor for an NGO that's based in in the U.S., actually, in Chicago, but they have offices in a bunch of different countries in the world. I'm currently based in Cali, Colombia, which is a great city. I'm really happy with it. But prior to this was in Erbil in Iraq, the same organization. Currently, I advise on their mental health programming globally. So they have programming here in South America and in the Middle East and in African countries as well. But I've only been with this organization for a bit more than a year and Prior to that, I was working with some other international NGOs and also doing research about mental health and gender-based violence intervention in various humanitarian contexts, living in, let's see, Jordan and Lebanon and Nepal after the earthquake there and Ukraine and, and just moving around a lot, doing this technical advising and also research. Have you done much therapeutic work or has it been more on the the research and the advising side? Yeah, it's a good question. I've done a little bit recently since I've been doing international work, but I did much more of that in the past. I used to work when I was living in the US in the VA system. So with veterans with PTSD and also worked in prison for a while doing group therapy for women who are sexual assault survivor. So I have done direct clinical work and I've done a little bit of that since working abroad. But typically the way these programs are structured is that if I'm an expat, I'm supervising and training the local staff who are providing the direct services to members of their own communities. I was so curious about that. I've spent much of my professional life teaching in classrooms where I was one of the only, if not the only white person. This is something, you know, in urban education, it's very common that educators do not mirror the student population. And there are a lot of problems that that come out Mm -hmm. as a result of this. And there's a Mm -hmm. lot of discussion and really necessary criticism of what's going on there and and of problems around white saviorism. And so Mm -hmm. I was really curious about what the conversation is like in your field. But it sounds like part of that is about having those immediate kind of intimate roles played by members of the existing community. That's typically the structure, yes, but I still think this conversation around white saviorism and hierarchy and so on is very relevant in the humanitarian sector in general, of course, but also in the mental health and psychosocial support sector in particular, because although maybe the direct service providers ideally are, and this isn't always the case, not every organization works this way, but often are members of the affected community themselves or are at least part of the same country or region. It still is the case that the hierarchy is often structured such that, you know, foreigners and often Western or members of the global North are 
higher up in the hierarchy. So our supervising or providing, you know, this technical support, but in fact, that role is higher in the hierarchy than the direct service right, providers right. in terms of how organizations are structured. And whereas there's some rationale for that in terms of, of training and education, and maybe there's some contributions that, in fact, foreigners in that role can make, it's also the case that there's really a lot of missing pieces in terms of contextual knowledge and on-the-ground experience. It's tricky in terms of combining these different kinds of experiences and thinking about how they're valued and what sort of structure makes sense then in terms of sort of providing the best services. I think these kinds of hierarchical dynamics and the different power dynamics at play are mm-hmm. significant in so many fields and in so many realms, definitely in education. I'm curious, having spent so much of your professional life in all of these different countries where you were a racial minority, if that has impacted your own racial identity in any ways that are obvious to you? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think it has it certainly made it more explicit because as a white American, and this is so sad and sort of tragic to say, but can grow up not thinking much about racial identity which is such a weird thing in itself. Um, mm. But but then being sort of out in the world, and I went to social work school, so certainly, you know, somewhat conscious and have become increasingly so. And along with that, more conscious of privilege, certainly, because a lot of the context that I've been in, although you would think being a foreigner or an expat is in some ways a disadvantage because you're lacking language skills, you're lacking sort of street smarts, there's a lot of ways in which you're not equipped to deal with life very well, but there's mm-hmm. still a certain privilege with being white and with being American and with speaking English as a first language. And one of the the first working abroad at length experiences that I had was in Haiti after the earthquake in 2010. And I have this very clear memory of skipping the line in a cell phone store and not through any effort of my own, but just sort of walking into the store and there's a huge line of people. And I was with like Haitian team members and they kind of pushed me to the front and were like, oh, she needs help, you know? And we were able to like skip the line that way before I was even really conscious of what was happening and found that really, you know, disturbing. Although I guess not terribly surprising, sadly. You know, I think it's that kind of experience you know, it happens unless you very consciously take steps to prevent it from happening. And that's, mm-hmm. that sometimes creates these strange mixed up places to be. I mean, my current, my current partner even is Syrian. And when we were first dating, he used to bring me to the Syrian embassy in Lebanon with him also to skip the line <laughs> because there was some <laughs> sense that just. I mean, the Syrian embassy in Lebanon, to be fair, is just a nightmare experience. And so can't totally hold it against anyone who's trying to skip that line. But, you know, and I I think he appreciated, you know, having any and I, I think people sort of learn to take advantage of any way they can get into any advantage they can they can take in these kinds of really difficult situations. And so, of course, he was going to take advantage of like, maybe I needed to get into the embassy for some reason, and he could just slip in with me and then deal with his own visa issues. Yeah. 
my partner is black. We're both American. He's a black American. And in all the years that we've been together, we lived in a number of different places in the States before moving to Italy. And I was always the person who was in charge of housing. If we were looking for an apartment, I was the only contact. I was the person who made all the arrangements. I was the person who saw the place. Everything would go through me. I am the person who manages the relationship with landlords. And Mm -hmm. that's something that felt necessary. Being here in Italy, we are here as a mixed race family. I am white and most of Italy is white. And so I definitely blend in as a family. We stand out a little bit, but we also have that American privilege, like you say, right? Mm -hmm. And so our Italian is not great, but we speak Mm -hmm. English. And even though Italians don't speak much English, they recognize it as a language of power. And so... We have difficulty sometimes as Americans in an interracial relationship with other Americans. You know, white Americans are often uncomfortable with our pairing. I have found that Italians are not at all, does not bother them one bit that we are together. Though I sometimes wonder if they would be a little bit unsettled if I were Italian. Right. I was just thinking that. Yeah. But it's a sort of thing like, well, we're just we're just these two foreigners. And so they're, they're not concerned. They don't have an investment in that situation. Mm -hmm. And so it's fine for them. And so we're able to then live with a lot more peace. So Right, right. And there's also just different rules for foreigners. Um, Yes. In general, I think in a lot of places, like the social norms don't quite apply to foreigners. And that allows a certain amount of freedom. But I really identify with that because I think with my partner, we in the Middle East faced in some ways more challenges than, for example, we face here in Colombia, where we're both foreigners and and people are just sort of like, whatever, you know, they're, yeah. let them do what they do. It's not our business, really. Whereas right. in the Middle East, you know, as an Arab man with an American woman, and now we have a daughter as well, like it's everyone's business. <laughs> Yeah, people have have a lot of opinions. Yeah, well, it's nice that you're in Colombia now, which is 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 a place where you can have some of those freedoms that we're enjoying here in Italy. Mm -hmm. People just not feeling like it's their problem, (laughs) right? (laughs) Exactly, and I think I think they see us both as sort of just equally foreign. You know, one of the reasons that I wanted to begin this podcast is because. I have found myself just continually fascinated by the experience of developing my identity as a mother in this foreign environment mm. because I had never been in Italy except as a mother. I'd never been to Italy before we moved here with our three-month-old. And I've almost never been a mother except in Italy. These two experiences are, are coterminous for me. And I've felt like there's something powerful in that layering, right, of becoming new, mm-hmm. somewhere new, where you're experiencing this entry into parenthood in a place where you're already primed to notice more just by virtue of the fact that everything is unfamiliar. And so nothing can be taken for granted. I'm really curious because you've lived in so many places. You've been a foreigner so many times. And now you're a foreigner who is also a new mother. And I'm curious if you sense there's a difference in how you navigate a new place or how that new place receives you now that you're in this new role. 
In some ways, it's similar. And in some ways, it's really different. And I think part of the difference is it's it's a different experience, right, to travel with your family. It's almost like in some ways safer and also in some ways more scary because it's safer in the sense that you're kind of traveling like a turtle with your shell. You have your family with you, like buffering you. So I have my partner and we have um, our daughter, Zaria is her name, and our dog. And we all travel together. And we're not going to be alone. There's not you're alone in a new place experience. And in that sense, there's some safety there. But on the other hand, there's this sense of, if it's just me, I feel like, oh, I can handle anything, whatever situation I get into myself, I can get myself out of it, because I have done this enough times. But it's the stakes are different, right? When you have your family, and especially a baby in a new place. And so in that sense, it it's scarier in some ways. Like I was more nervous about moving to Colombia. It felt like a more crazy thing to do. Whereas before I was married or before I had a kid, I was in a second just be like, oh, of course we're, you know, I'll just go to this new country across the world that I've never been to. No problem. But I was really nervous about whether we were making a good decision. I don't know. It did feel like riskier to sort of take this particular leap. But since being here... I do think there's a much more explicit pathway, I guess, to connecting, especially to local people when Mm. you have a baby and when you have a dog, but especially when you have a baby. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The combination works is nice, though. If you work in the humanitarian sector, especially, there's a whole little bubble of foreign humanitarian workers anywhere you go and everybody knows each other. And it's like this small, you know, incestuous community where people quickly sort of meet each other and everyone works very hard. It's like a group of people that have been through a lot. And so there's a lot of of drinking and partying and it's easy to get into that crowd. But then sometimes you can get sort of bubbled in there and not connect with the local, your neighbors and, and the community that you're in as much. And with a baby, it's really different in that, you know, as you were saying about Italy, like people love babies and in Colombia as well, you know, it's really easy to just be walking down the street and have people approach and comment on the baby. And of course, they want to kiss and touch the baby. And at this stage with COVID, we're doing less of that. But there's sort of a social, like universal, global, like social code about you're allowed to comment on on babies. So I feel maybe more embedded in the community here than maybe I would otherwise be. I think that I feel much more connected to to Rome and to Romans by virtue of of having children here. And they're just fantastic ambassadors (laughs) and and help me to connect with, with people so much. That's been a really nice thing. I'm curious, because your husband is Syrian, you have this international marriage and you have not and at the moment cannot live in America. I know she's very young, Zaria, but I'm curious how, if you at all imagine what her relationship might be to her Americanness. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think I have been thinking about that and at the same time thinking about my own relationship to my Americanness because In a lot of ways, I feel like I've been in recent years pretty disengaged, partially just because of this whole travel ban thing, pretty just fed up with the whole country, like to some extent, like they can, it can just burn. Or maybe that's just my coping mechanism in terms of feeling really furious, you know, to be in this position where I can't bring my own family to my own country. Yeah. And 
Yeah, just recently, just like in the last couple of weeks with the protests that are happening in the U.S., the Black Lives Matter protests, I've started feeling a little bit more invested in the U.S., (laughs) to be honest, Mm -hmm. than I have in years because, I don't know, a number of reasons, I guess, but because it's it's been, of course, really distressing, but also really important. It just feels like such an important moment for the U.S. And I feel sad that I'm not in the country at this moment. Such an important moment, uh, such a, a, a moment that I'd like to participate in. This is all to say that I'm sort of struggling with this question of whether the U.S. is a place that I want to kind of engage with and be hopeful about, or if it's a place I just want to sort of discard of entirely. And I guess that has a lot to do with how I think about it for for Zaria Z, we call her. In terms of her sense of of connection, I don't know, I'm torn. I guess at the end Mm -hmm. of the day, I feel like it's important to be an American through all of the terrible things that America does, but it is, it's hard to stomach. Yeah. So I think I want her to be an American, but to be critical and thoughtful Mm. one and like a little bit hopeful also, you know, for her to see the good pieces that said, like, I don't know. I really don't know if even if we could live in the U.S., like whether we would with our kids in some ways, they're they're completely American. I mean, they have two American parents, Mm -hmm. but. You know, they're surrounded, aside from us, they're and completely surrounded by Italians most of the time when we're not in pandemic lockdown. My daughter goes to a little Italian Montessori school where all of our teachers and classmates are Italian and she speaks only Italian and is very, very immersed in Italianness, much more so than I am. I was feeling very, very distant from it. And first, the pandemic actually had me suddenly feeling a little bit closer. And then now with the protests, it does, it has had me thinking too about what my children's relationship is going to be to the country of both of their parents' birth, depending on how long we stay here. But once we got here and realized that American anti-Blackness doesn't exist here, I, mm-hmm. I wanted to stay because all of those things, all of those things that you experience in those first couple years of life, you're just observing and learning about every single thing you watch. I didn't want that to be in America. I mean, one of the small things was just when we were in California, where we were living for a decade before coming here in 10 years, I don't think there was a day that a white woman didn't cross the street in fear of my partner. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want my children to see the world around them afraid of their dad and not be able to understand that or even put words to it. And we also are just excited to have them have this opportunity to be growing up bilingual, which is not something we could have provided for them in the United States where we both speak English. Yeah, I mean, agreed. I mean, we have Z now is, of course, speaking English and or she's not speaking anything. She's like nine months old, but she's hearing English and Arabic and, and then Spanish from the community. But yeah. I'm really, it's really interesting to hear your thoughts about not returning until they're verbal, that that's like the, a key piece in being able to process and not just be kind of in some deep way scarred without any recourse. And I, I get, I get that. 
I just wonder though, if like being able to speak is enough. I, I just like worry about <laughs> being an adolescent yeah. or like a teenager yeah. Yeah. where you're so insecure and your identity is like locks and you are taking to heart every little tiny thing, you know, let alone blatant racism. I think you're right. I think that definitely language is not going to completely inoculate you. No, but I think it makes sense. And I think I agree with you also that there's like really a value to kids seeing diversity at a young age, like in terms of the ways that people interact and that there's not just one way of being. Mm -hmm. I don't know that 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 there is some part that happens during very early childhood in which there's some internalized like sort of set of expectations about the social hierarchy or it's so tragic. But being able to at least recognize that this is not some sort of objective reality, but just the way in which one particular culture dysfunctionally works is really meaningful. After talking to Leah, I thought back to the protective bubbles Andre and his brother had successfully built around themselves and their families. I thought about the bubbles white Americans rarely bother building safely ensconced as so many of us are in a racial ignorance that is ten parts violence, one part bliss, though most days only the latter concerns us. I thought about the privilege that follows people like me and Leah around the world, of safety with which we can cross national borders, babies in tow, fearing some things, but never that our children will be ripped from our arms and caged. And I thought about my therapist's confusion witnessing my raging at my baby's passing. Are you angry because you want that racial hostility to be directed at your child? Of course not. But there is no pain that I would ever want to escape if I had to leave my child behind to endure it. And that is the flip side of my privilege. I can at times shepherd a loved one or three through a small gauntlet, securing a lease, entering an embassy. But every time I skip the line, someone's child is pinned down at the back of it. And it took me having a child to really understand that everyone crushed by the weight of my privilege is someone's child. George Floyd cried out, Mama. His had already passed, but we're still here. And none of us deserve the title if we don't answer his call. This is Lynn, day 77, Iowa City, Iowa. Certain aspects of pandemic life are reminiscent of life with a newborn. I felt deja vu when I donned my mask and headed out to Walgreens for the first time in two months, remembering how my first visit there after becoming a parent was almost overwhelming in its fluorescent splendor. At other times, I imagine I'm a retiree, relishing a visit to the outdoor garden center where I can putter around the tented rows, peering at each plant, storing up visual stimulation for the rest of the day in my all-too-familiar home. The last time I did the Walt Disney Mouser size, I was probably five years old, 
My mom gave me a copy of it on a CD some years ago after I had my first kid. Hadn't used it at all since then. During lockdown, I figured I'd give my three-year-old and my six-year-old some exercise time, so we did it. We crawled around on the floor pretending like we were going to steal Uncle Scrooge's money. We pretended like we were pigging out, taking food from the fridge. Brought back all kinds of nice memories of mom. This is Jeannie, day 74, Oakland, California. Early in isolation, my son woke up already furious. Mama, I woke up on the wrong side of the day. These days, I find, each of us wakes up differently. Some wrong, some right. We each get a chance every night to try again to set our moods against the long-stretched sameness of the days. Parents of all nations. Genitori di tutte le nazioni. Thank you for listening to Pan Parenting. I'll be back in two weeks with writer, professor, and father Robin Hemley to talk about the responsibilities of 21st century travelers and the ways race reshapes the borders of one's world. Click the links in the show notes to learn more about Jeannie, Lynn, and Nick. To see photos of my guests' lockdown lives, follow the show on Instagram, at Panparenting. When did you first feel the weight of your own privilege? If you have thoughts to share on this episode or want to share your own 30-second dispatch, email a voice memo to info at panparenting.com. To join me on this year-long journey towards fearlessness, subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or wherever you listen. And if you like what you hear, please take some time to rate and review the podcast, which helps others find it. Thank you to everyone who has lent their ears. Your act of witness keeps this quest alive. Power to the people.